Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. September the 9th, 2018 was the day that we gathered together in the presence of God and constituted as a church body. It was in this very room that we read scripture and heard it preached, sang and prayed shared the Lord's Supper, and recited our church covenant all for the first time as a newly formed church. And in God's great grace, he established the Trails Church. Uh, I will never forget that day. It was the day uh, so many prayers uh, were answered. One of the most consistent prayers that I learned to pray through planting the Trails was pleading that God would go before us in what he had called us to, in our preaching of Christ and the scripture, oh God, would you go before us. In the various ministries of our church, God, would you go before us. In our desire to plant a church that would be centered on nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ, God, would you go before us. In our public witness, as we hold out the good news of the gospel to this community. Oh God, would you go before us. In that prayer is an echo of what Moses prays in Exodus thirty-three, fifteen. God, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't bring us up from here. I had no interest in trying to plant a church if I didn't have a sense that the Lord would go before us as our guide, and walk with us as our help, and Come behind us to hem us in with his presence. And so this morning, I thank the Lord for three years of establishing and sustaining the Trails Church. And that we've had a deep and abiding sense of the Lord's nearness attending our every step. As we've sown gospel seeds in the field of this community that he has called us to. And watered this soil with our lives and pray for a harvest of souls. This doesn't mean we've not seen our share of real sorrows and hardship, losses and crosses along the way. It simply means that Christ has carried us. I'm so thankful to be a part of this church family and for Jamie and I to get to raise our children here in the fertile soil of this church. Um, You don't know what a privilege it is to get to pastor a church like this that loves God's word and loves the gospel of Jesus, loves one another so devotedly, and loves this community with the love of Christ. Today we turn the page and begin a new chapter, the fourth year of our history as a church, and I pray, and would you pray with me, that God would continue to go before us as a church family, that he would carry us through this next chapter. I cannot think of a more suitable passage for us to look at this morning than where we find ourselves in our study of the book of Exodus. Last week, we, we completed the first two chapters of this great book that tell God's story of redemption, yet so far... There's been no mention of any real plan for how God intends to do this. And we look around and it seems there's no deliverer capable to save the people of God 
from oppression at all. However, with the turning of the page from chapter 2 to chapter 3, things significantly begin to change. While there's no act of deliverance quite yet, there is something remarkable activated. The presence and revelation of God himself. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, contains one of the most unforgettable scenes in the whole of Scripture. Here lies an extended section, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, 19, where God calls Moses to be a prophet, a leader, a deliverer of his people. Here in this little section, Moses is welcomed into the burning presence of God. He's spoken to audibly and then sent as God's instrument of redemption. So I've entitled the sermon, The Presence of a Holy God. I want to organize our thoughts around three realities found in this memorable passage that I pray shape us as a church both today and for years to come. First, in verses 1 through 5, the presence of God. Second, the word of God, verses 6 through 9. And finally, the mission of God, verses 10 through 12. So I would like to ask the congregation to please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Though written long ago, still speaks to us today. Exodus 3, 1 through 12. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? 
that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. What a passage. The first reality we come to is the presence of God. The scene begins with Moses doing what he had been doing for 40 years now, working as a shepherd, keeping his father-in-law's flock. The very man who was raised in Pharaoh's palace, where Acts 7.22 tells us that he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, now holds the lowly occupation of herding sheep in the desert wilderness, yet the strong, steering hand of God is at work. As Moses shepherded the flock through the dust, God was preparing him to pastor his very own people. This would not be the last time that God trained a shepherd of his people by actually first making them a shepherd of sheep. Think of David and Amos. Verse 2 tells us that he had arrived at Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai as it's better known which is here called the mountain of God. And Mount Sinai is vital to the story of Exodus. It's the very place that we'll come back to in Exodus 19 as the law is given to God's people. The whole place thunders with his voice and flashes with the fire of his presence. While Moses kept his flock, something caught his eye he had never seen before. This bush was on fire, but it was not being burned up. I love how he says, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Really? <laughs> Imagine holding a match in your fingers that is ablaze, and yet the flame never sinks into the wood consuming it, burning your finger. This is not just an extraordinary fire. This was the extraordinary presence of the holy God blazing before Moses' eyes. God got his attention. And all of a sudden, the bush speaks. This week I've been thinking about three amigos where that bush sings. This is nothing like that. The bush speaks. The eternal God whose voice spoke into existence all things chose to speak through a common desert shrub. Moses. Moses. He calls his name twice, inviting him to draw near. And then as Moses approaches the presence of God, God says, stop right there. Don't come any closer. Take off your shoes. Remove your sandals, Moses, because the place you're standing is holy ground. This is a remarkable passage, isn't it? What I want us to circle our thoughts on in these first five verses is the fiery holiness of God's presence into which no person can enter on their own. This account is known as a theophany, which is an appearance of God's glory to humanity. Or uh, scholars from the early church fathers have seen this as a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Godhead, Christ. At first, it's said to be an angel of the Lord that appeared in the fire. 
However, as we hear him speak, verse 4 tells us that this messenger spoke as God, not simply for God. This isn't a, a uh, mere angel. This is the burning presence of God himself. Fire is one of the recurring images of Scripture that communicate the holiness and presence of God. One scholar commented why that is, saying that fire is, a, is physical, yet it cannot be grasped or taken hold of. It offers warmth and comfort, yet it holds immense power to destroy. Isn't that right? In the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden was guarded by two angels with flaming swords. God's covenant with Abraham was confirmed by a blazing torch and a smoking pot. Soon we'll see the comforting presence of God signified in fire by night. And a few months after this blazing bush, the entire mountain of Sinai will rumble with thunder and fire and smoke will swirl in the air. In Deuteronomy, Moses describes God as a consuming fire. Here, and through the book of Exodus, we will see Moses come to know the intimacy and warmth of God's fiery presence. And at the same time, he's protected by it, yet transformed by it. And so it is with us. As we think about valuing the presence of God as a church, I think about valuing intimacy with God through Christ, the warmth of his fiery presence, and at the same time growing in awareness of God's grace that protects us from the presence of a holy God who we have no business coming toward on our own, and the way that he transforms us by his nearness. So my prayer is that we would be a people who grow to know and treasure and live in the presence of God, We would grow in intimacy with him. And as a result, the fire, consuming fire of his presence, would produce in us a serious holiness. As a people who have heard God call our names and welcome us into his presence, let us enjoy him. And may our lives be marked by the presence of God as a church. In verses 6 through 9, we turn our attention to the second shaping reality of this passage. Each of these realities we're looking at shape our church life together. And here we come to the Word of God. These verses introduce us to something new in the book of Exodus, but something we'll see again and again through the whole Scripture and in the witness of Scripture itself. God makes Himself known through words. There are two specific truths revealed here as God speaks of his identity and he speaks of his heart. And so first, let's see what was revealed about his identity. God told Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, it's interesting that God doesn't introduce himself as the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, sovereign Maker of heaven and earth. Because that's true. But the first words God utters to Moses identify him with his people. 
The God of the burning bush is not an unknown God. He's the very God of Moses' own father, Amron. We learn that in Exodus 6. Of his father and his ancestors before him. By mentioning the patriarchs, God assures Moses that the promises he made to his fathers before him to bless them, to multiply them, to be their God and for them to be his people, those promises are still as sure and certain as God himself. With God, every promise made is a promise kept. He is faithful to his promises. And in hearing this, notice Moses' response. He hides his face from the presence of God. From God's holiness, he trembles at his voice. He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The second truth we hear outlined in God's word is his heart. Now, last week we reveled in the reality that God heard, God remembered, God saw and God knew his people. Verses 7 through 9 retrace our steps again, but with greater detail, filling out what Moses had already said previously in chapter 2, 23 through 25. The word I is repeated four times. God is focusing the attention on himself and on his great love for his people. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. It's no small thing here in verse 7 that God calls Israel my people. He's happy to identify with them. Not because they are special. Not because they are remarkable in any way. But because he has chosen them. Exodus is about God delivering his people. Then instructing them with his word. And then transforming them with the holy privilege of his presence. He calls them my people again and again. He calls us his people today. There's nothing that happens to his people that misses his watchful eye. I have seen. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, he says. God doesn't turn his ear from his people, but tunes his ear to their voice. He says, I have known their sufferings. We, we learned last week that God knows his people in this comprehensive, intimate way. But remember, there was no indirect object given to what he knows. Chapter 2 just said, but God knew. It's not creepy, but a little bit. And here some focus is given to God's knowing. He knows the suffering of his people. And I was talking to James about this this week. There's a striking difference between these two verses, chapter 2 and chapter 3. In Exodus 2, Moses told us that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Remember when scripture says that God remembered, it's cluing us in that God's about to act. Specifically, he's going to act on his word and his promises. In Exodus 3, the word remembered is replaced with the phrase, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of Egyptians and to bring them up to the land that is good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
God's love for his people didn't stay suspended in the heavens. He's going to act in love to rescue, to redeem. Notice the trajectory of this love. God's going to come down, enter into their pain and suffering, and then bring them up to a place of blessing and provision. That's what God's going to do. So in chapter 2, God remembered. In chapter 3, he says, I'm, I'm coming down in order to lift up my people from their condition. So God's word in these just few verses tell us of his identity and his heart. And that's just a few verses. We've got a whole book that tells us what he is like. As a church, we are committed to the word of God. And the reason is that we believe that it is the very word of God that is infallible. It can't be wrong, that it's inerrant. That means every single stroke of God's pen is perfect and that it is unchanging. That's why I remind you week by week, quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever because we believe that to be true. It does. His word will not return void. His word will do its work in us, tearing down, building back up, reorienting and renewing us from the inside out. And it's in this book we come to know the identity of God, who he is, what he's like. Even more, we come to know him in his word. And then don't you see his heart that we see here? The heart of God toward his people. It's here in the scriptures that we learn of Christ who came to seek and save the lost. Where the great trajectory of God coming down to rescue and redeem in order to lift us to be with him once and for all. It's in the word that we see and know Christ. It's in the word we see and know the spirit who dwells within us. Seals his promise. We were a church planted in the word of God. And let us remain a church in the word of God. And finally, let us look at the third shaping reality of our passage, the mission of God, verses 10 through 12. God is going to deliver his people. And he's going to do it through his people to accomplish his plans and purposes. So what we find in these final three verses of this text is that God's will is not that Moses just sit in his presence for the rest of his days, but go in his presence to fulfill all of the works that God had preordained Moses to walk in. Perhaps more surprising than this burning bush and more stunning than the voice of God are the words that God speaks in verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. That you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, Moses expected him already, this new introduction, expected the God of the universe to say, um, I will go to Pharaoh, and I will bring my people, the children, out of Egypt. And that's true. We will see uh, how those things work together in the coming weeks. But today, I want us to think about the mission of God given to Moses, this great commission God sends him with a message of deliverance and also with good works to fulfill. 
Moses is stunned. He looks over his shoulder. Me? You talking to me? I'm going to bring your people out of Egypt? God, I tried that once. About 40 years ago, I saw one of your people getting beaten down, and I, I tried, and, and now I'm a shepherd living in the wilderness. Moses argues with God in verse 11. It's the first of five arguments that he will give in the rest of this account, where he's asking, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I? This Hebrew kid who grew up in the palace of the Egyptian king and now lives so far from his people, so far from the land of Canaan, which is filled with enemies, by the way. I'm not a redeemer. I'm a shepherd talking to a shrub. Who am I? God doesn't even answer his question. Not yet. He simply gives him two promises. The first is the promise of his presence. He tells him, I will be with you. There's not a word that God will give Moses to speak or a step that Moses will have to take or the presence of God will not go before him and with him and behind him. God's promising his presence to his people. What a remarkable gift. The second promise that God gives Moses is the promise of a sign. But it's a future sign. You see, one day in the future, after God has accomplished the deliverance and redemption of his people, Moses will stand on this mountain again, not alone, but with the people of God gathered around. They will worship God together at Sinai. That's the sign. Now, we would expect the sign to be something tangible, something close and right now in order to give Moses the encouragement he might need to take God at his word. But God's not inviting him just to do something for him. God's inviting Moses to trust in him as his God. God's welcoming Moses to live a life marked by faith. We'll spend all next week watching Moses wrestle God in the wilderness. Until then, I just want to remind us on this anniversary Sunday, God is still on a mission to deliver and redeem his people from sin. God, once again, came down in the person and work of Jesus Christ in order to rescue us and lift us to be with him And God still has chosen to work through broken, needy, sinful people. His people that he's not embarrassed to identify with in order to accomplish his mission. Brothers and sisters, you and I are a sent people with a message to proclaim and good works to carry out. We've been entrusted with a message of the gospel. The good news of the holy God who dwells in unapproachable light, yet who welcomes sinful people, calling them by name. And through the blood of Christ, we are able to draw near, boldly approaching his throne. The mystery of mysteries, we are not consumed by the fire of his presence, 
but we are made holy by it. And as God's people, we also have been given promises. Like Moses, we've been given the promise of God's presence in our lives. As we seek to fulfill this great commission to glorify God by making disciples, teaching people all that Christ has commanded us, baptizing people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the God who redeems. Oh, and we have another promise. A promised sign. But it's also in the future. There will be a day where people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, all of the people of God, gather around his throne, gather around Christ himself, and together we will say to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Look up, saints. That day draws near. One of the most freeing lessons that we will learn in the coming weeks and is already being introduced to us in these verses is that none of this is about us. It's all about the God who goes before us. On this third anniversary, I mean, those of us who are getting older and getting older every day, that's all of you. Some of you faster than others. Three years is just nothing. But it's a thousand days of God's faithfulness to us, and so it is something. But the name the Trails Church will come and go. The name of Jesus Christ will last forever. And so we don't trust in ourselves. We don't trust in our wisdom. We don't trust in our strategy. We don't trust in our resources or plans or creativity. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. So this morning we, we turn the page and begin a new chapter in the life of the Trails Church. And there's so much on the horizon. I cannot wait to see the Lord do in and through us. There are also losses and crosses that we will bear. But through it all, Christ will bear us up. Our God will go before us to guide us with his presence his steadfast love, our hope and trust. His grace will lead us home. Would you pray with me? God, let us, your people, be marked by a deep and abiding sense of your presence, a deep and abiding trust in your word, and a deep and abiding commitment to your mission. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.